Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Guys, we are in Matthew chapter 5. If you have a copy of God's Word, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We are in week two of our sermon series going through the Beatitudes of Jesus. And we saw last week that the Beatitudes, it's Jesus' sermon intro for the Sermon on the Mount. And what he's doing is he's giving us a description of a blessed life in the kingdom of God. And by way of recap, we saw last week in the first Beatitude that someone is blessed when they are poor in spirit. That is when they live their life with this kind of humble dependence upon the Lord. We saw that a person is blessed also when they mourn, when they mourn over their sin and they mourn over the consequences of sin in the world. And that mourning leads to repentance and faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this morning, let me go ahead and give you my main point right up front. We are blessed when we have a meek heart and a desire for a righteous life. The next two Beatitudes are about meekness and about a desire for righteousness. Now, what does it mean to be meek? You know, I think in our culture, when we hear the idea of meekness, we tend to get a mental image of a person who's weak or wimpy or timid. For my fellow millennials out there, I get the mental image of like Toby Flenderson from The Office. You know, why you always got to be so mean to me? You know, that guy, he's just, he kind of gets picked on a lot. He's kind of dorky. You know, that's what I think of when I hear the word meek. But I think Jesus is going to show us something a lot better than Toby Flenderson as a virtue for us to pursue. And then think about this idea of hungering and thirsting after righteousness, this idea of desiring God's righteousness. We desire a lot of things. As human beings, we are literally like wanting machines. We just want things 24-7. We're really good at wanting things, at desiring things. And what are the things we want more than anything else at a foundational level? I think we want comfort. We want pleasure. We want security. We want status. We want success. We want power. There's a lot of things we want, but often righteousness doesn't crack the top five. But what Jesus is showing us is that our chief desire, the thing we should want more than anything else, should be God's righteousness, that we would desire a relationship with our creator and then to reflect his righteous character in our lives. So this morning, Jesus is going to show us that a blessed person is someone who is meek and someone who desires God's righteousness in their life. With this in mind, let's take a look at these words together from the Lord Jesus. Matthew 5, we're going to study verses 5 and 6 this morning. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let's open with a word of prayer. 
Oh, Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for its truth, Lord. We thank you that you have given it to us to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And Lord, I pray that as we study these amazing words by the Lord Jesus, that you would show us, that you would teach us this morning what it truly looks like to be blessed. Lord, what it truly looks like to have a life that is blessed in the kingdom of God. Make us more meek. Lord, give us a greater desire for your righteousness. And above all, let us be more satisfied in who you are for us in Christ. For we pray these things in his name. Amen. All right, let's kick things off with verse five. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. Now, what does it mean to be meek? Well, in the original language, this word literally means mild or soft. It was sometimes used to describe a soothing medicine or a soft breeze. And this one's really interesting to me. It was used of an animal whose wild spirit was broken by a trainer so that they could then be useful. So it has these ideas of being gentle, being submissive, being quiet, being tender-hearted. We get sort of a picture of this in Titus chapter 3 where it says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy to all people. So by way of definition, when we put all those pieces together, I would say that meekness is about having a gentle, self-controlled heart posture, but it's also, there's another dimension to this, it's about power under control. Think about like the horse that has to be broken so that it can be useful. This is about power that is under control. A meek person is gentle, but they choose to use their power in a way that glorifies God rather than gratifies their flesh. So a meek person is not someone who is weak or wimpy, someone who's powerless. It's someone who says, yeah, I have strength. I have power. I have influence. I have authority, but I'm going to use them in a way that glorifies God and serves others rather than in a way that gratifies my flesh. And here's the deal. I think that takes more strength. It takes more strength to have power and restrain it and channel it properly than it does to have power and abuse it. This is what it says in Proverbs 16, 32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. That's true. I mean, think about it. It takes more strength to control your temper than it does to go and conquer a city. Those of us who struggle with our anger, we can say amen to that, right? It takes a lot of strength to have self-control. It takes a lot of strength to be gentle. Think about it this way. For you dads who like to play sports with your kids. Now, let's just, I'll use Hannah as an example. She's three and some change. And let's say her and I decided to go and play basketball. Now, I am not this great athlete by any stretch of the imagination, but I think I could beat her in basketball. And if I wanted to, I could dominate. I could wipe the floor with her. She could be ready to shoot, and I'd be like, whap, and just smack it out of her hands. I'm sure I would have the power to do that. But would that be helpful for her? Would that be good parenting? A good display of my power to show her who's the boss? No, of course not. A meek person has the strength to do that but they also have the gentleness and the self-control and the love for others to think what's best for them. 
what is best for them and what brings the most glory to God. In this way, meekness is humility in relationships. Meekness is the relational aspect of humility. We could put it this way. Meekness is selfless toward others. A meek person does not use their power for their own gain, but they selflessly surrender their power to God's control for the establishment of his kingdom. A good biblical example of this, I think, is Abraham and Lot in Genesis 13. Let's back up. Genesis 12, God calls Abraham uh, out of Ur. He gives them these promises. I'm going to bless all the world through you. He gives them this promise of this land, the land of Canaan, the promised land that would be for him and for his descendants. So we get to Genesis 13, and by the way, he brings along his nephew, Lot. Now, God doesn't make any promises to Lot. Lot's just the family member who's along for the ride. He's a moocher. So basically, you get to Genesis 13, and they're both have prospered and grown, and they both have lots of flocks and herds, and the land isn't big enough for the two of them. So they start quarreling. They have problems. And so they figure this out. Like, man, one of us has got to go. We've got to take different parts of the land. Now, Abraham would have been well within his rights and his power and his authority to go, hey, man, God made the promises to me. This is my land, so don't let the door hit you on the way out. But is that what Abraham does? No, he says, look, the land is before you. I'm going to defer to you. You're my nephew. Like I am your elder and God made the promises to me, but I'm going to defer to you. You pick the land. Now, if you keep reading, you know, he made a bad choice, a really bad choice. But the point is that Abraham did not feel the need to leverage his authority, his power, and his influence for his own selfish gain. But he trusted God trusted that God was in control, so he surrendered his power to the control of God to do what was best for others. So if that's what meekness is, if it's a gentle heart posture, it's, it's power under control, it's selflessness toward others, let me say a few things about what meekness is not. And I feel obligated to say this uh, because I love dad humor and it rhymes, uh, but meekness is not Weakness, right? Meekness is not weakness. We need to emphasize that. MacArthur put it this way. Meekness is not weakness, but meekness does not use its power for its own defense or selfish purposes. Meekness is power completely surrendered to God's control. Remember, meekness is like the horse that has a great deal of power, but it has been broken so that it is now submissive to the control of its master to be used for his master's purposes. That's what a meek Christian is like. We have been broken so that now our power is used under the control of our master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, even as I say that, I also want to give this caveat. Though meekness is deferring to others, though meekness is selfless, all of those things, meekness is not being a doormat. We, don't, we shouldn't get the Toby Flanderson type picture of someone who's just weak and wimpy. It does not mean being a doormat. I mean, think about it this way. Jesus himself, as we'll see in a couple of minutes, described himself as meek. He said, I am meek. Yet Jesus could be very direct, very clear, and even forceful and angry when it was necessary. And here's the difference. Meekness is opposed to selfish retaliation or revenge or the abuse of power. Meekness is not opposed to the proper use of power. Meekness is not opposed to zeal for the glory of God that leads to clear speech and action. So think about it. Jesus almost never responded to personal insults about him. Didn't care. Rolled right off his back like a sheep before his shears was silent. 
But when the glory of God was being compromised, when people are buying and selling in the temple, he gets out the whip and he starts flipping tables, right? He did not feel the need to defend himself against personal insults, but he would defend the glory of God tenaciously. Think about Paul the same way. Paul would let him talk, man. Say all you want about me. But when the gospel is on the line in Galatians, he's saying, if anybody preaches another gospel, let him be accursed. It is not opposed to zeal for the glory of God. This is what it looks like for us to be meek. Let me apply this. Guys, as Christians, we should seek to grow in this sort of gentle heart posture. Do you realize that gentleness is a fruit of the Holy Spirit? One of the evidences that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life is that you are gentle, not that you're harsh or abrasive or obnoxious, that you are gentle with other people. Christians should never be cutthroat. We don't do whatever it takes to get ahead. We don't push other people down in order to raise ourselves up. We don't demand that we get our own way. We don't demand that other people serve us, but we selflessly defer to other people for their good and for God's glory. Let's seek to grow in that church because what's the promise that is ours when we live a life that is meek? Jesus says we'll inherit the earth. It's pretty good. I mean, I don't know. There's a lot of promises in the Beatitudes. This one's pretty good. I don't know if you could top it. Uh, I don't know what your inheritance is going to be. I don't know what your parents have. I don't know what your grandparents have. I don't know what your uncle has or whatever, but they probably can't give you the whole earth. And even if they could, the earth that he's talking about here isn't even this current sin-cursed, messed-up earth. This is the new heavens and the new earth where everything is perfect, where there's no more sin, no more brokenness, because here's what I think is going on here. The kind of person who is meek, a follower of Christ, is someone that when Jesus returns will be an heir to everything, all of creation, a new heavens and a new earth. That's incredible. You know, Jesus's language here echoes the Psalms, Psalms 37, 11. It says this, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Jesus is taking this promise from the Old Testament and saying, this is the kind of person who will inherit not just the land, but everything, the whole earth. And they will delight in the abundant peace that God provides. That is the hope that we have in Christ. And so what that means for the meek person is this. We don't need to insert ourselves now. We don't need to try to accumulate power and wealth and influence for ourselves now. We trust that. And we leave that in God's hands because we know that's coming in eternity. And it'll be so much better when we inherit the earth along with Christ. So according to Jesus, a blessed person is a meek person, someone with a spirit-empowered gentleness that uses their power to selflessly love others. This is the kind of person that will inherit the earth. That is the third beatitude. And so now let's look at the next one. Blessed are those who desire righteousness. Blessed are those who desire righteousness. Look at verse six with me. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Obviously, this idea of hunger and thirst, it's a metaphorical way of expressing an intense longing or desire for something. And just as food and water are basic to our physical life, so righteousness is basic or essential to our spiritual lives. The purpose of this beatitude is to show that a blessed person, their greatest desire is for God and for his righteousness. 
That is to be like Jesus, to be holy, to use a big word for you, to grow in our sanctification. That means to grow, to be more holy, to be more like Jesus, to get rid of the sin in our life and to put on the Christ-like virtues that we are called to. So that's our greatest desire. And now let's start in talking about pursuing righteousness by talking, first of all, about the need for righteousness. Why do we need this? Well, let's start with the bad news. In ourselves, we're not righteous. We're not righteous. We're not good. Let me prove it to you. Real simple. Romans 3.10. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. It couldn't be any more clear. Guys, in our own flesh, in our sin, we are not righteous before God. We are sinners. We are broken. We don't pursue or desire or hunger and thirst after God's righteousness. We hunger and thirst about the things that will gratify our flesh. So in our sin, our greatest need is to be made right with God. We need the righteousness of God to cover us. And this is where the gospel comes in. You see, the gospel is the good news that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world, the one who perfectly hungered and thirsted after righteousness because he never sinned. He was perfect. And yet Jesus went to the cross, dying, paying the penalty for the sins of all of his people, and he rose from the dead three days later so that when we turn from our sins and we trust in Christ, the Bible teaches that we are declared righteous by God that Jesus's record of righteousness is given to us and we are declared righteous. That's the gospel. But here's the deal. That is foundational for everything we're about to see. You must be covered in the righteousness of Christ before you can pursue God's righteousness in your life. In other words, you have to be declared right with God before you can start to live right with God. You must be justified before you can be sanctified. And when that happens, when you are saved, when you are declared righteous through the gospel, that begins the pursuit of righteousness, the pursuit of righteousness. And I, I want to say this. This is really important. This is something that I've been meditating on this week. It's a really important point. The pursuit of God does not stop at conversion. It starts. Let me say that again. The pursuit of God does not stop at conversion. It starts. That's the starting line, not the finish line. So often we think about our Christian life in these terms. I got saved. I found God. Now I'm good to go. I'll see you in heaven. Guys, that is not the Christian life. Rather, it's God has saved me. He has brought me into my family. And now I start this life of pursuing God, pursuing his righteousness, becoming more like him, growing in my knowledge of him, growing in my love of him. It's the starting point, not the stop. But so often, man, we view it like we often view our marriages. Because you know what happens in marriage? When you're dating, you're pursuing. When you're dating, you're like, I got to look good. I got to smell good. You know, we're talking constantly. We're going on dates. Like I'm doing whatever it takes to impress this person and to win this person. I'm pursuing them. Then we get married. Then time goes by, and after a while, little by little, we don't care if we look good. We don't care if we smell good. We don't talk that much. We don't go on dates. We take them for granted, tragically, way too often. But just as a godly husband will continue to pursue his wife, a godly husband, you look at a couple that's been married 30 years and say, are they dating? In the same way, a godly follower of Christ is someone who pursues Christ passionately, fervently, someone who desires God. 
So in the pursuit of righteousness, Jesus talks about hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And I love that metaphor for this reason, as Christians with us pursuing God. You know what one of the first signs of new life physically is? Hunger. You know, there's like four things a newborn knows how to do. Two of them are being hungry and screaming because you're hungry. And that hunger is in itself one of the first signs of life. The fact that they're hungry shows that they're alive. In the same way, spiritually speaking, the first and clearest sign that you have been born again, that you've truly been saved, that there's something different about you, is a hunger for the things of God. That you have new desires. And little by little, you don't desire the things of the world as much as you used to, and you desire the things of God more and more. In my own life, this is true. Before I was a Christian, I found the Bible dreadfully boring. Couldn't stand it. I mean, if I ever dusted the cover off to open it up, it felt more like a homework assignment rather than feasting on the riches of God's word. But the clearest sign that something changed in me was my appetite for the word. I started one of those read the Bible in a year plans when I was a new Christian. I got impatient because it wasn't giving me enough reading to do every day. So I started reading ahead and I'm pretty sure I got through Genesis the first couple of days or something like that. And that's certainly not to boast in me. It's just to illustrate the point. One of the clearest signs that something has happened in you is a hunger for the things of God and also a lack of desire for the things of the world. You know, uh, let me illustrate this. Way. Any of you guys ever quit drinking soda and switch to something that doesn't have sugar in it? So let's say you switch from regular soda to diet soda or Coke Zero or whatever else, or just water. And then you go back a couple of months later and try to drink a soda. You know what happens? You're like, this is gross. This tastes like just sugar in a can. And you're like, this is disgusting. I don't even, I used to love this. I don't even want this anymore. That's what happens when you become a Christian and you grow in Christ. Your desires change. Your spiritual taste buds change. Man, I can remember times where I would go back after being a Christian for a couple of years, be like, oh yeah, I, I used to love that movie. I'm gonna go watch that movie that I watched before I was a Christian. And 10 minutes in, I had to turn it off. I'm like, I used to like this trash. What happened? What happened is that my spiritual taste buds changed. Now I had a desire for righteousness and the things of this world that used to gratify my flesh, I found it disgusting. It no longer brought pleasure. That's what happens in sanctification. God changes our spiritual taste buds. And he does this in two ways. There's two aspects of this pursuit. First of all, there's a desire for God himself. A desire for God himself, not just the righteousness of God, not just the benefits that God gives, but a desire for God. At a fundamental level, a Christian is a person who wants God. A person who desires God. This is what the Psalms say over and over. Psalm 63, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, he's saying, God, I want you like a guy who's stranded in the desert with no water wants a drink. That's how much I desire God. God begins to create this and nurture this desire in us for himself. But next, there's, there's also a desire to be like God or a desire to please God. If God is our chief desire, if God is our all-satisfying treasure, the one that we want more than anything else, then it follows that we would want to please him. 
that we would want to honor him in our life, that this would be the thing that we seek first because Jesus is going there in the Sermon on the Mount where he mentions righteousness again, Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. He's saying, make this your top priority. Make this your primary desire and aim to grow to become more like Christ. You might be thinking that sounds great, but I have a problem. I don't often desire God as much as I should. I don't often desire God's righteousness as much as I should, and I want to want more. But how do I change my desires where we're getting there? But first, let's talk about why don't we desire God? A few thoughts on this. Why don't we desire God as much as we should? Well, first of all, I think our love can grow cold very easily as Christians. It's very easy for our love to grow cold, especially for those of us that have been following Christ for a while. I mentioned those early days of being a new Christian and the hunger that I had for a word. I get nostalgic for that. Like I get nostalgic for the, the longing and the fire that I used to feel for the Lord. And just like the church in Ephesus in Revelation, where Jesus says, you've got your doctrine right, but you've abandoned your first love, that can often happen to us. We can grow cold. Sometimes, however, we don't desire God because we're too filled with the things of this world. We don't hunger and thirst after righteousness, in other words, because as your mom used to say, you spoiled your appetite with the distractions and the toys and the things of this world. But here's why that's so foolish. If God is the most satisfying person in the universe, if as we just sang about, only God can satisfy our souls, then to turn to the things of this world for satisfaction would be like if you're on your way to your favorite five-star restaurant to get the meal of a lifetime and you drive through Taco Bell on the way. We're filling up on the things of this world that are cheap and empty when we don't even realize that there's a five-star feast waiting for us. We're too full to come to God and be hungry. But even worse, the third one's the worst of all. Sometimes in our pride, we think we are full already. It's possible to get to a place where we feel like we have arrived spiritually. To come to a place where we feel like, man, other people ought to look at me and take notes. Because I got this Christianity thing figured out. But this is what Thomas Watson had to say about that. He said, none are so empty of grace as he who thinks he is full. He has the most need of righteousness who least feels the need of it. Man, did you catch that? You never need God's righteousness or God's grace more than when you think you've already got it and you're filled with it. Pride can keep us from pursuing God because we think we don't need to. Why would I need to? I've got this figured out on my own. Self-sufficiency. So how can we grow in this? How can we grow in our desire for God and for the things of God? It's real simple, really simple. Fill your life, saturate your life, fill up your schedule, your money, all of that. Prioritize the things that inflame your desire for God and then get rid of the things that are distractions. Find the things that inflame your desire for God, whether it's the word and prayer, whether it's worship music, Christian community, these means of grace, these spiritual disciplines that God has given us so that our heart will pursue after him. Fill your life with those things. And then we've got to remove things that are distractions. Sometimes that's sin, sure. Sometimes it's good things. Sometimes it's good things that we've got to get rid of because we need to make sure that we have the margin in our lives to pursue God 
One of them is just we're too busy. Often we're just too busy to pursue God. And we've got to get rid of something. That is very common in our lives, especially as Americans. We are addicted to productivity and busyness. And some of us just need to start saying no more often so that we can pursue God. Next, how can we grow in our desire for God's righteous character in our life? I'd encourage you to meditate through the word of God on what Christ-like character looks like. Maybe that's going through the Ten Commandments. Maybe that's going through the fruit of the Spirit. Maybe that's going through the Sermon on the Mount, looking at the righteousness that God requires of his people, holding ourselves up to the mirror of God's word, and then praying, Lord, reveal to me by your Spirit the ways that I fall short, and then give me the strength to walk in obedience to your will. That's what it looks like for us to desire God and desire his righteousness. And when we do this, the promise that we get is satisfaction. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be satisfied. This satisfaction, it's, it's a deep contentment with God, and it's an ever-increasing hunger for the things of God. It's kind of a paradox. You see, we're satisfied with God, but that satisfaction increases our desire. We're simultaneously more satisfied and more hungry and you know what that's like in the physical world. I mean, think back to the last meal that you had that you were like, oh man, like that was awesome. That where you were just completely satisfied. Maybe it's Thanksgiving where you eat to overflowing and then you lay on the couch and let the football game watch you. Or maybe it's the last time, you know, your anniversary, you go to your favorite restaurant and you get just, you know, the most expensive steak on the menu or whatever else. You had this meal that was super satisfying. And you just sit back and along with the indigestion, you just start to feel this intense sense of, I am so satisfied right now. That was awesome. That was amazing. But then think about this. You're going to get hungry again. Eventually, you're going to get hungry again. And when you get hungry again, are you going to say, yeah, that meal was great, but I don't need that anymore because I already had it. No. If it was really good, you're going to say, man, I want another steak. Like, I want that again. That was so good that I want it again. Your satisfaction increased your desire later. It's the same thing with God. When we come to God and we find him to be satisfying, it makes us want more of him. And it ever increases this cycle. But here's the deal. We are only promised satisfaction when we desire God, not when we don't because other things can't satisfy us. It is when we hunger and thirst after righteousness that we are satisfied. When we look to anything else, Jeremiah 2 tells us that my people have committed two great evils, that they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold any water. What we do is we go to the things of this world and the people in this world looking for satisfaction for our souls, and they leave us empty because we can't even imagine how good God is and how satisfying he is. It's like the very famous C.S. Lewis quote. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised us in the gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is being offered by a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. 
far too easily pleased. When we look to the things of this world to give us what only God can. Church, only God can satisfy our souls. We sang that song this morning, You Alone. I had the privilege of writing that along with Corey, with Hunter, the worship leader at our Chesapeake campus. And we wrote that song for this very reason, that God is the only one that can satisfy our souls. When we go to any other fountain, it can't hold any water. But God is the fountain of living water. When we come to him, he promises that we will be satisfied in him. And God sometimes, through his word, he gives us these pictures of what that satisfaction looks like and, and what it will ultimately look like in eternity. And one of my struggles, man, sometimes, if I could even call it that, when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to scripture, sometimes I come and I read passages like I'm about to read you, and I'm like, that almost just seems too good to be true. I read this, and I'm like, this is so amazing, I can't even fathom it. But that just gets me so excited for glory and for eternity and what God has in store for his people. I mean, just listen to these words and try to picture it in your mind how incredible it will be when we see God face to face and we will be eternally satisfied in him. This is Jeremiah 32. 31, excuse me. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord over the grain and the wine and the oil and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Do you believe that? My people will be satisfied with my goodness. This is an eternal satisfaction that nothing in the world can give us. And in Christ, nothing in this world can take away from us. So I'd like to leave you with this thought. You know, I concluded the sermon last week by showing you how Jesus was the ultimate example of being poor in spirit and how Jesus was the ultimate example of mourning. And in the same way, I'd like to close by showing you how Jesus is the ultimate example of meekness and hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And I do that for this reason. Guys, Christianity is not a list of rules. Christianity is not self-help. It's not good advice. It's about a person. It's about pursuing and following after Jesus Christ, a person, our living hope, as we just sang about. So let's look together. What does it mean for Jesus to be meek? Well, first of all, in one of the very few passages where Jesus describes himself, where he said, this is what I am like. This is what my heart is like. He describes himself this way. Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. You could easily translate that. I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. How was Jesus meek? Well, the Jews of Jesus' day only understood the power of brute force. They wanted a Messiah who would come and would conquer Rome and rule with an iron fist. There was even a movement in first century Judaism known as the Zealots. And the Zealots wanted to overthrow Rome by any means necessary. So when Jesus comes on the scene and he claims to be the Messiah, the promised savior, this is why they were so confused. They expected the Messiah to come and to overthrow Rome, to conquer their enemies, and to rule over the kingdom. But when Jesus came, he was meek. He was humble. 
He was gentle. He's saying, turn the other cheek. This is why when Jesus says, I'm the Messiah, Peter's like, yes, Lord, you are the Christ. Then he says, I'm going to die. And he's like, no, you're not. (laughs) Even if his disciples were so confused by this, they could not picture a meek Messiah. Yet Jesus, as the Messiah, never picked up a sword. He was even meek to the point of death. And you know he could have stopped it, right? This is power under control. He himself said, I could call down legions of angels right now if I wanted to and stop this whole thing. But he selflessly deferred for the good of others, namely all of us, by going to that cross and dying for our sins in our place. Jesus was meek to the point of death, even death on a cross. But friends, Jesus also desired righteousness. Why was he baptized? To fulfill all righteousness. What does he say in John 4? My food, the thing I hunger for, is to do the will of him who sent me. His chief desire was the glory of God that's manifested in the fact that he never sinned, though he faced great temptation. Jesus was meek, and Jesus hungered and thirsted after righteousness. But here's the promise. When we follow Jesus' example, by walking in meekness and desiring God's righteousness. The promise is that we will be satisfied, but but do you realize that Jesus is the one who satisfies? Jesus is the very one who brings this satisfaction to our souls. The promised reward is God himself. You know, it says in the Old Testament, man, it gives you the tribes and their allotments of the land, all except for Levi. And they say to Levi, hey, you guys don't get an allotment of the land because the Lord your God will be your inheritance. And if you're like me, you read that and you go, they got gypped. They didn't get any land. But if we had spiritual eyes to see, we would see they got the best portion because they got God himself. Listen, why should you come to Christ? Because you get God. That's why. Because you get God. And there is nothing more satisfying or beautiful than God himself. Jesus himself put it this way, because listen, this isn't the only place he talks about hunger and thirst. John 4, Jesus said to her, whoever drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Complete, total, eternal satisfaction in Christ. That is what we are offered in the gospel. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, let me tell you, you are missing out. You are missing out because God is amazing. There's nothing more satisfying than knowing God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And if you want to talk more about what it would look like to have a relationship with our creator and be satisfied in him, at this time, I'm going to invite our prayer team to come up. They'd love to talk with you and pray with you about how you can be satisfied with God through Jesus Christ. And for us who are in Christ, let me challenge you, first of all, to grow in this meekness, grow in this gentleness, grow in your humility before God and your love for others, and then grow in your desire for God. Fill your life with the things that increase your desire for God and get rid of the distractions. So before we go out singing, I'm going to invite the worship team to come back now. I want to do something just a little bit different this morning. 
Uh, I typically close in prayer in my own words, uh, but myself and the other pastors at Coastal are going through a book together right now called The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. And um, Tozer, a lot of the thoughts I had in this sermon even came from this chapter. It's so good, but he closes every chapter with a prayer. And so I'd actually like to close by praying uh, this prayer that has already been written because I think it articulates what I've wanted to say in this message better than I could. So let's close our eyes, let's bow our heads, and let's pray these words together, and then we'll go out singing this morning. Oh God, I have tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need of further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. Oh God, the triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me thy glory, I pray thee, that I may know thee indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me grace to rise and follow thee up from this misty lowland where I have wandered so long. In Jesus' name, amen.